0: morning, everybody. Hey, let's welcome everybody online. We're from people from Guatemala, Puerto Rico, South Africa. We're glad that you're here. I want you to do me a favor. Would you stand up for just a moment? I know we just were standing, but I want you to stand again. And we're standing to honor the Lord right now because I want to pray and we try our best to just honor him right now in this moment. So let's lift our hands. Father, right now in this moment, we just want to invite the anointing of the Holy Spirit into this place. We thank you, Lord, that you're here, you're ready to move in our lives, you're ready to challenge us to come up higher in the things that we've been called unto. And I pray for everyone that's here and also all that are watching us online, God, that the Spirit of the Lord would break any yoke of bondage off of our life today. And then today, when we leave, we will not be the same as when we came in. I pray for the transformative power of your word to come forth and I pray for you, Holy Spirit, to bring us into a place of understanding of the fullness of who you've called us to be. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and everybody said amen. Come on, let's give him praise. Let's give Jesus praise, amen. You may be seated. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, <clears throat> traveling into, uh, to Dallas in, in, to do a conference at Gateway Church and then also speaking at a church. And in the time of, of flying there, I was just talking to the Lord, praying a little bit about uh, the message that I was gonna minister there. And I, I just was really having a, kind of an in-depth conversation with God, just sitting there in the plane, not verbally, but internally, about the state of the church. And uh, where we are as a church right now, and I don't mean this specific church, but I'm talking about the church, the general church, especially coming uh, out of two years of the pandemic, the COVID season, and what it has done to the church, how many people have dropped out of the church as a result, how many churches have closed, how many people have sort of lost their faith in the process, and they've put, you know, it put people for two years in front of computers like never before. And how many of you know in front of computers is usually not good. It can create all kinds of problems in our life. The computers today remind me of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, and you know where where God says to Adam and Eve he says, "Do not you can partake of anything out there, but do not partake of that tree." And of course, we know the the symbol for apple you know for apple computers is a bite out of the apple and because and, 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 we we bit into that apple, you know thousands of years ago, and we see the result of it uh, and how it opened our eyes to things that we shouldn't see and shouldn't know and created a world of information to now where everybody is way more educated in information but less active in the things of God. And so what's happened is that the church has lost its way. And I'm, I'm praying through this, and I'm saying, "What what is the deal, God? And the Lord began to speak to me about the gifts that are in the church, and how many gifts are, are sitting idle in the church, I want you to take a moment and just think about that. I want you to think about what 's sitting in this room right now, just the power that 's sitting in this room, the potential that 's sitting in this room that has not been realized yet. How many of you agree? probably agree that i'm not i'm not fully i 'm not fully arrived at where God has created me to be. Let, let me just see your hands you, you, i 'm not fully there yet, but and, and many of us unfortunately have settled into this place where I don't think I'm gonna get there, Lord. I'm not sure I'm gonna get there, or I really don't care about it. I really don't care about fulfilling my fullness, my potential. And what's happening is that we've got these gifts in the church, we've got business gifts, we've got creative gifts, we've got ministry gifts that sit side by side every weekend to hear messages, and, and yet we're not real releasing what God has created us to do. So I'm I'm thinking through this process, and I said, Lord, what would it look like if the whole church was really operating at its top peak performance? What would happen if all of us were really, really releasing our gifts? We just came out of a series on purpose, and I thought it was a fantastic series Pastor Johnson preached in this church about purpose and how God has something specifically that he created us to be and to do in the earth, but so many times, we hear that, we know that, we know that's what that's truth about what we're supposed to be doing, but many of us don't believe that we can do it. We don't believe that we can do it. So even though we have purpose and we may even know what our purpose is, it goes unrealized. So, I started praying. I started praying for the church. I started praying right there on the plane. I preached this message out of, that I'm going to preach to you this morning, and I, and I realized that this is not just a message for a specific church. This is a message for the church, and the, and the words the Lord gave me was just two words, breaking limits. Let's say those together, breaking limits. Now, how many of you recognize that, whether you realize it or not, we live sometimes with limits on top of us, we limit what we think we can do. And, and yet, God says to us there, is, there are no limits to what you can do in Christ. You can do amazing things if you get a hold of Jesus. So I'm reading through the scriptures, and I come upon this scripture in Ephesians chapter 4. Where Paul is writing this letter to the church, and he describes the gifts of the church. He describes the fivefold ministry, the apostle, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher, and the evangelist, and how they're given to the church as gifts to edify the church, to equip the church for the work of the ministry. By the way, you understand that coming to church is not just about getting edified. It's also about getting equipped and, and, and equipped to do what? To do the work of the ministry. There is a ministry within our lives that we're supposed to do while we're here on the earth, and, and, and I realized that what happens is we, we lose sight of it. So he writes this letter in Ephesians chapter four in verse 16, and I love this, this amplified verse. And he says, for because of him, talking about Jesus, the whole body, the church in all its various parts, closely joined and firmly knit together by the joints and ligaments with which it is supplied, when each part with power adapted to its needs is working properly, in all its function, grows to full maturity, builds itself up in love, causes the church to grow. So he's saying that every part has a part to play. Each one of us has a part to play, and it says he equips us, he gives us these gifts so that we can all join our gifts together. Now, I want you to just take a moment and individualize this for you personally in this room and also you watching online. And ask yourself the question, if the church was made up of people like me, the, the person you are, and how I operate in, the, in what God's created me to be and created me to do, if the church operated all like me, what would the church look like? What would the church feel like? Would the church be doing anything significant? Because certainly if you're not doing something significant, the church would not do anything significant. And so at some point, God is saying through Paul prophetically, he's saying, what would happen, I'm praying, God, that you would take the whole church, everybody, everybody, every human being, regardless of their background, regardless of what they've been through, regardless of their failures, regardless of anything that's limited them, take the whole church and release them in the fullness of who they're created to be and put those gifts, those talents, those creative gifts, those business gifts, those ministry gifts together, it causes this explosion, this combustion that happens in the church that reaches and touches and changes the world. That's what God called the church to do. Listen to me carefully. God never called the church to put all its emphasis on politics to change the world. Did you all hear what I just said? There are no Republicans or Democrats that are going to change this world. There's no president that's going to change this world. There's uh, there's no leader anywhere in the world that's going to change this world for the good of God. What's going to change this world is the church. And it's not one person, it's a group of people that are called together to release their gifts. But our problem is, we really don't believe that. We say we believe it, we might, amen, Pastor Dennis, yes. (laughs) I agree with you. And then we walk right out of here and go back and watch television or look at our computers. <laughs> Come on, somebody. And so I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, what does this look like? The Lord showed me, he says, you remember when you were doing a study one time, I, back years ago, I was a psychology major at God's College, University of Georgia. I can't help it if we're number one. I can't help it, I'm not apologizing for it either. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat that drum till it stops. All you Alabama fans. <laughs> but anyway, I, while I was in school, we, we saw all these different studies and they were talking about how people, how people learn, how people are educated, and how people release in, in their minds. And it says that when a child, when they're born from the age of zero starting till the age of five, this amazing creative entrepreneurial, all kinds of things starts happening in their brain. They just start developing faster. Their their imagination skills, their verbal skills, their thoughts, their creative skills, all those things start just going, multiplying, magnifying. And they said that a child between zero and five learns more in that span of time than the rest of their life. That's why it's so important, parents, when you have children, not to just drop them off. But to, to really pour into them, because that's when they're the most absorbing. But it says something happens to them at the age of five that starts to stop, stop their growth creatively, stop their thinking a little bit, starts to slow them down. What happens at the age of five? They go to school. And I'm sorry, all you teachers. I'm, I'm sorry. But, but what we're trying to do many times in our education sometimes stifles the creativity of people. And suddenly, our child—I've got a little four and a half-year-old daughter who's just starting like preschool, and she's going to school, and and she's very smart, and she's you know just really, really starting to learn things fast. But she's being held back in her class because not all the students are as smart as her, and so we have to dumb it down to the to the lowest denominator and hold them back. And this is what happens sometimes in education. We tell our kids, "Okay, you can no longer cl- color outside the lines." You now have to fit into the structure of the lines of what we've created for your education. You have to learn the way we think you should learn and you have to learn what we think you should learn. And now we're starting to educate kids in areas they don't need to be learning. They don't need to be learning. They're not created to learn those things. But we think that somehow this is good for our children. And what happens is slowly but surely As a child starts to grow up and they start to learn limits and start to learn boundaries and they start to learn all these things, it shuts down their belief that they can do anything significant. It's kind of like this, and this way I can illustrate it. I've used this illustration a couple times in the church, but I can't find a better one than this one, so I'm gonna use it again. It's kind of like this, they've done a study with this. This is a true study where they've taken fleas and they've put them in a jar. And they train fleas. This is how you train fleas. You put them in a jar. And, and what they found about fleas is fleas have the ability to jump 36 inches. They can jump three feet in height. So you, you could be up on a chair. If it's, it's lower, they can jump up on you. They jump up on dogs. They jump up on. How many of you ever been bitten by a flea? You know what I'm talking about? Or you've had a flea. And so they put these fleas in a jar. And then what they did is they put a lid on it. And they watched the, the, the fleas start to jump, trying to jump out of the jar, because they don't like living in the jar, so they're trying to jump out of the jar, because they jump three feet, but they kept hitting their little flea heads on the top of the lid. And eventually, over a period of training, over a period of time, even fleas can be trained. Even fleas have brains. They have little brains, but they have brains. And they realize, if I keep jumping high, I'm going to keep hitting my little flea head on the top of this jar, so I'm going to lower my jumping. I'm going to jump just high enough so that I no longer hit my head on the jar. And then what they do is they go, and after they see that they're no longer jumping high anymore, they take the lid off of the jar. So now there's nothing to keep the flea from jumping out of the jar, but the flea's mind has been trained that if I jump too high, I'll hit my head so they stay in the jar. Can I just tell you something? There are some of us in this room, some of us watching online, we have been placed in a jar by society, by society's norm, expectations, people talking to us, degrading us, telling us what we can't do. They put lids on our life and we don't know that when we come to Jesus, he takes the lid off of our lives And says come out of this jar and be who I created you to be. I don't think you got that. I don't know that you really got that. But what God's trying to say to the church is it's time to get out of the jar. It's time to get out of the jar. It's time to to come out and be who God created you to be. I'm not mad, I'm just frustrated sometimes. I get frustrated when I see the potential that's sitting in this room, not realizing that potential, not knowing what God created them to do and to be. And so I'm reading through the scriptures, and here's the scripture that stood out to me in 1 Corinthians chapter one. Paul writing, he says this in verse three. May all the gifts and the benefits that come from God our Father and the Master, Jesus Christ, be yours. Every time I think of you, and I think of you often, he says, I thank God for your lives of free and open access because of Jesus. Jesus has taken this lid off of your life. And he says, now you have access to God through Jesus There's no end to what has happened in you. It's beyond speech, beyond knowledge. The evidence of Christ has been clearly verified in your lives. Just think, you don't need a thing. Quit living your life. Well, if I just had this or I just had this, then I would do that. When you come to Christ, you don't need a thing. You don't need more money. You don't need more people. You don't need more this, more that. You have everything you need in Christ Jesus. You are the richest person in the world. People that have billions of dollars but don't have Jesus have nothing. You who have Jesus are richer than the most richest person in the world, you're richer than Elon Musk, you're richer than Bill Gates, you're richer than Jeff Bezos, you're richer than anybody when you have Christ. Why would you think and act less than that? The riches of Christ are much greater than the riches of this world. And he's saying you have everything you need, you don't need a thing, you've got it all. And all of God's gifts are right in front of you, as you wait expectantly for our master Jesus to arrive on the scene for the finale. And not only that, but God himself is right alongside. He's right alongside to keep you steady. How many of you know you need Jesus to keep you steady? And on track, steady and on track. During COVID, I think a lot of people stopped letting Jesus be alongside them and started letting their computers be alongside them. And they, they lost track and they lost steadiness with God until Things are all wrapped up by Jesus, God who got you started in this spiritual adventure. I love that word. Spiritual adventure. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm an adventurous type of person. I like to do things that require risk. Some of you are very low-risk people. I'm a high-risk person. You don't run a ride in the car with me. (laughs) I'm a high-risk person. I try high-risk things. I know some of you think that's foolish, but I just believe that God wants us to live a life of adventure. And his spiritual adventure is beyond anything we can ever do in, in, in natural adventures. And he says, this is a spiritual adventure. All right, so let me, let me, let me just bring it back, back to you. I come to your house. I'm in your house today. I'm coming after church. I'm coming to lunch at your house. What are we gonna do? What's your house look like? What's your life look like? If I were to say, what what do you do on a regular basis? What's your day-to-day life look like? What's your morning, noon, and night look like? What what does your life look like? Would it be defined as a spiritual adventure? Or is it pretty much a settling into a, a pattern of life that has no adventure? How boring is life how many people live bored lives, and this is why they can't stay focused on anything. As soon as they get bored with this, they switch to something else. They switch their friends, they switch their, their social media accounts, they switch this, they switch that. As soon as you're standing in the mall and you don't have anything to do, you're on your phone looking at this, seeing what's going on with somebody else. You live vicariously through the lives of other people who are failing worse than you are. <laughs> Did you hear what I just said? How long can you go without looking at your cell phone? Can you go a whole sermon? Can, can you go a whole sermon without picking it up to see who's texting you, and what's going on? Are you texting somebody right now? This is, I, I don't know, is, he's trying to deal with my addictions to the cell phone. Some of us got addicted during COVID. And I don't mean to cell phones, I mean we got addicted to something. We got addicted to things that were not good for us, not helpful for us, not pushing us forward. Sometimes we get addicted to failure. We get addicted to negative thinking. We get addicted to complaining. We get addicted to sowing strife. We get addicted to talking about others. We get addicted to thinking life is bad, the future is bad, everybody's bad. We get addicted to those things. We get addicted to Fox News. We get addicted to CNN. We get addicted to political figures. We get addicted to things like that. And what I'm trying to tell you, as long as you're going down that road, you're never gonna fulfill what God put you on this earth for. All right, so he says, he says the spiritual adventure, and then he says, "Uh, he shares with us the life of his son and our master Jesus. He will never, I love this, never give up on you. And then for emphasis, he says, never forget that. Now, I don't know about you, but I like that. I like the fact, how many of you messed up before? How many, let me just see. I mean, I have, how how many of you really messed up? I mean, you really, maybe you're messing up right now. I mean, you just messed up. (laughs) You come in here full of mess. And people say, "Ah, I don't go to church, bunch of hypocrites, they're all messed up. That's why we go to church. Because we are all messed up and we need to get corrected. We need to get challenged. We need to get changed. The church is not a place for perfect people. We have no perfect people allowed in this church. You, uh, thank God. Amen. Amen. And we, we, You're welcome if you're imperfect. But the bottom line is we don't want to stay in the state of accepting imperfection. We want to strive for good things. We want to strive to succeed in life. Amen. And there's this lid of the world on top of us, and so something has to change. And so I'm gonna give you three thoughts, three ideas to help move you in the direction where limits are no longer holding you back. And these three thoughts are things that changed my life when I sat there and thought through them deeply. These are the three things that I really got early on in my Christianity that kinda took the lid off of my life. The first one is this. Identity determines destiny. Identity determines destiny. Now, we're living in a season right now where the majority of humanity, especially in America, especially in America, is having an identity crisis. They're having an identity, especially if they're younger, they're having an identity crisis. I can't tell you how many young people I run into on a regular basis that have an identity crisis. They don't know who they are. If you ask the question, who are you, there's not a good answer. So I'm going ask you that question, who are you? What gives you your identity? Now, as you go through life, you'll see there's a lot of things striving to form your identity, to form who you are. Some things that are very common, your sexual identity. There are many people that are confused about their sexual identity. So now we've put 60 different labels on sexual identity. We have homosexual, heterosexual, pansexual, bisexual, and, and we have this gender fluidity. fluidity and we're, and we, we're in a society now where so many young people, particularly young people, but old people too, the old people aren't exempt from it, we're so confused about our sexuality when the Bible clearly defines who you are sexually. If you're a man, you're a man. If you're a woman, you're a woman. There is no confusion. God didn't create you with this confusion. The only reason, listen to me. The only reason you would believe there's a confusion of who you are is because you don't believe in God. You don't believe that God created you. You believe that somehow you were misdiagnosed mis- uh, when you were when you were born. That you're no longer who you, who everybody thought you were. You're now confused. I feel more like this, and you define your identity by how you feel instead of who God says you are. As soon as you start defining your identity by your feelings, you're going down a road of confusion and destruction. And now we have people so confused, they think, well, I've got to confuse everybody else, so let's teach it to our little children. Let's get in schools and teach it to our little children how confused we are. And let's make sure our children are confused so that now children are growing up, even in the church, confused about who they are. If you're here and you're confused, let me just, let me just help you. God created, if you're a male, body-wise, you're a male, that's who you are. And you're, you're, there's no confusion about who God created you to be. If you're a female, you're a female. You're a woman. Don't think you're a man. When you see a man's bathroom, don't walk in there. You're a woman. You're a woman. And I know, I know, well, Pastor, that's not politically correct. Aren't you afraid you're gonna lose somebody? Why would I be afraid? Why would I be afraid of losing people that don't believe in God and don't believe in the Word of God? Why would I be afraid of that? I'm not afraid of that. God's Word is God's Word, He's not confused. Some people's identity is so wrapped up in that that's all they think about all the time. It drives them. And then you have people that are, their whole identity, and this is gonna help, this is gonna maybe help, uh, might offend you a little bit, but this is the truth. Many people's identity is wrapped up in their race. They're all about their race. My people, my brothers, my sisters, I'm this, I'm that, I'm I'm a a Latino, I'm black, I'm white. That's my identity. Do you really think that Jesus created you to have that kind of identity? That he put you on this earth and make your identity based on your skin color and the culture and the country you came from? Do you think that God created you for that, that that's who you are? When you base it all on that, then you're always going to be in tension with other races. And what they do or don't do with you or against you. You're going to constantly be offended at other people. There's going to be a division. You're going to segregate according to those things. And you're going to constantly be prejudiced, even though nobody knows you're prejudiced, but you are. Did you hear what I just said? And I hear people all the time, well, the only people that can be prejudiced are white people. That is wrong. That is wrong. He said, well, you don't understand what has happened in our country in the history of slavery. I know. I was just in the African American Museum. I know the history of slavery. I've studied it in depth. Can I tell you, you, those of you that are black, you were not the first slaves. There are plenty of slaves in this earth that are not black. Plenty. The Jewish people were enslaved for 400 years, and God still had his hand on them. And he delivered them from their bondage into the promised land. Listen to me carefully. Not based on what non-Jews would do for them. When he took them into the promised land, they were ready to obtain the promised land. They were ready. God had his hand on them. He had taken them through this terrible struggle of slavery and the history of slavery, and he was taking them out of bondage into this in place of promises, but but he couldn't get the slave mentality out of them. It took him a while. It took him years in the desert to get it out of them so that they could enter into the promises of God because they were waiting on something else to deliver them instead of God. God is our deliverer. White people, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, we are not each other's deliverers. God is our deliverer. And as soon as you start to form an identity wrapped around your race, you will be limited within that. You'll limit what God can do in you. You'll blame what you're not achieving on another person or a group of people instead of accepting that no matter what is against me, if God is for me, it doesn't matter who's against me. It doesn't matter who's against me. Some of you are, I don't agree with that. That's because you've had this lid on top of you. Your identity's messed up. You've let the world put an identity in you that's not godly. All right, and then you have people, there's whole identities wrapped up in their careers and their achievements, wrapped up in their friends and who likes them and who doesn't like them. How many Facebook friends? How many Instagram? How many TikTok friends do I have? And and, and their whole identity is based on what people think about them instead of who God created them to be. Dumbing down their identity. So then you go to the Bible. Y'all remember the Bible? (laughs) I don't believe in the Bible. Well, that's why... This thing is on top of you right here. If you don't believe in the Bible, that's where you're gonna live. You're gonna live in that jar for the rest of your life. I don't care who you are, you'll live in that jar. But when you start to believe the Bible, here's what the Bible says. In Galatians, here, here's what it says. Chapter 2, verse 20. My old identity, everybody say old identity. old identity. Did you know that you can have an old identity and a new identity? I I just, you know, this is just the way it is. This is the way I was born. This is the way I, you know, this is the way I was raised. That's who you used to be. That's who you used to be before Christ. But when you receive Christ, you get a new identity. My old identity, he says, has been co-crucified with Christ and no longer lives. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine, not for me to do whatever I want, for the anointed one lives his life through me. We live in union as one. Another translation says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. My new life is empowered by the faith of the Son of God, who loves me so much that he gave himself for me, dispensing his life into mine. When I hear this constant thing, well, I'm this way because I was born this way. I was born this way. I was born this way. Can I tell you something? That's why Jesus said, you must, if you want to see God, if you want to see the kingdom, you must, you must be born again. If you are not born again, you will always live within the limitations of how you feel and the way you were born. But you're born again, you're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. You have a new identity. And your identity is not in your race, your sexual orientation, your careers, your achievements, how you look, how many friends you have. Your new identity is in Christ. And in Christ, you can do anything. You have no limitations on you. In yourself, you are limited. In Christ, you have no limitations. All right, so then he goes on to say this in Galatians chapter chapter three, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Once you come to faith in Christ Jesus, and by the way, let me pause for a moment. If you've not come to faith in Christ Jesus, then this doesn't apply to you. It only comes to you once you have faith in Christ Jesus. But once you do, he says, all who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. It's like you start your life over again. You have a whole new wardrobe. And he says here, there is no longer Jew or Gentiles, no longer about your race, your culture, slave or free, no longer about your past and what's been done wrong to you and how great things are for you, no longer about being male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, Everybody in this room, we have 145 nations in this church. That's a lot of people, groups, a lot of cultures, a lot of different people in this church. We have men and women, we have young and old. It says, every one of us is, once you come to Christ, becomes one. One. One, how? In Christ. Outside of Christ, you're divided. You're talking about other people. You're complaining about other people. You're, t- Oh, well, they're a Republican, or they're a Democrat, or they're black, or they're white, or they're, they're homosexual, or they're heterosexual. In Christ, you're one. You're one in Christ so that you can do one thing, which is serve him. And he says, now, he says, all that you belong to Christ, you are, are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Now all you gotta do is go back to the Bible and study the life of Abraham and say, I like that. Abraham b- was blessed. Everything Abraham touched was blessed. His family was blessed. His cattle, were blessed. His, his crops, his, his commerce was blessed. He was at one time the wealthiest person in the world. His health was blessed. He was having children at 100 years of age. Come on, somebody. <laughs> and pass then. <laughs> this man was walking in the fullness of blessing, and he says, you're his children, and therefore, and you say, well, I, I don't believe that. I just can't believe that. That's because you have this <laughs> lid on top of you. It could be a religious lid. It could be just practical, common-sense lid that's touched God down in your life. It doesn't believe in God, but God says it in his word, And I don't know about you, but I just made a decision in my life a long time ago, God knows more than me. He knows better than me. And when we make that decision, then we see what it says in the word, then the word is who he says he is, and it says who we are. And then he says this in Galatians 4, now, you are no longer a slave. Quit being a slave to this world, but you're God's own child, and since you are his child, God has made you his heir. My identity is not in who the world says I am. My identity is not in what people say I am. My identity is not in my race, my gender. My identity is in Christ. If my identity is in Christ, I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Therefore, whatever Jesus can do, I can do. That's why the Bible says the works that Jesus did on the earth, you can do also. And greater works because he goes to the Father. Your identity is in Christ. Secondly, everything with God requires faith. Everything with God requires faith. All right, so I want you to just take an inventory of your life right now and ask yourself this question, what am I doing right now that requires faith? What am I doing with my life that requires faith? In other words, if God doesn't come through, this is not going to happen. Most people live within the limitations of what they can do in their own strength, They limit their life. They define their life down to I can only do this because I'm only able to do this. Now, this is what I went through as a young man of God when I first got saved. I was a business guy. I had started a company, and I was trying to build this business, and I was a pretty good business person, and I had faith, but here's who I had faith in, myself. I had faith in myself. You're good. You're strong. You can do this. You you can build a business, and I could. And I started building this business and it started succeeding and then I got saved. I gave my life to Jesus and one day I'm sitting there and I'm praying, I'm just talking to God and God says to me, I want you to sell your business. I want you to get out of that business and I want you to start your life over in another city, helping a little church get started and I'll tell you once you do that, what's next? Now I don't know if you've ever had an experience with God like that but I did and I, I'm not apologizing for it, it did happen to me, it's a real thing that happened to me, and I just know this, it was not easy to decide to do that. When, that. when I got that word, it was hard, because I was successful in what I was doing. I had success. But I just, I really felt like God was in it, so I said okay, so I sold my business, I moved to Richmond, Virginia, started my life over. It took me from that point to starting this church 10 years. Or eight years, I should say. Eight years to starting this church. Then Fast forward, now I'm 32, I'm here in Atlanta with my wife starting this church. We have no money, we have no possibilities of money, we have no church supporting us, no pastor blessing us, sending us out, we had none of that stuff. We had, it was a strictly church scratch, grinded out plant with six people. Six people to start a church with. And and we started this church with six people, in fact, One of the six people sitting right there, Farrell, Farrell Brown, Farrell, stand up. I want people to see you. You were one of the people that helped me when we started the church. He's our missions pastor now. He was in my youth group back in the day when we were in Richmond. And we started with nothing. And this is the beautiful thing about God the less you have, the more God can do. The less you have. Now, think about that. When they had just a few loaves and a few fishes, God took those and multiplied them into feeding thousands of people. But what if they'd had all the food? They wouldn't have had to trust God. And so I learned the hard way how to trust God. And I start reading through the scriptures, and here's what it says about faith. And just the the faith chapters, Hebrews 11, it says this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith is not later. It's now, and even though you can't see it, you still believe it. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So in other words, all, I know all the scientists think, well, we came from this and we evolved into this and evolved into that. And all. No, God created the world through his spoken word. You, how do you believe that? That doesn't make scientific sense. Sometimes science puts a <coughs> lid on us. It puts a lid on us when it comes to believing God. And I know some of you are very medical, very science-oriented. science, science oriented. It has to make sense. And when you live that, you'll live in this jar. When you're, if you're gonna follow the God that I follow, you're gonna have to believe that God is greater, greater than science. That God does not require science for him to move. God does things that defy Science. When people get healed of cancer, and there is no medical reason for them to get healed, and doctors say to people like somebody I just talked to last week, where the doctors say, I don't know what happened, I don't know how it happened, but whatever this God is, he healed you, because we certainly didn't do anything. We can't heal you. Science can't explain that. Science really can't explain creation. It doesn't make sense. So God says, look, the worlds were framed by the word of God, not by amoebas, not by monkeys, not by people, Cro-Magnon men, the word of God is what shaped the world. And it says, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible, visible. Then he says, in Hebrews 11, six, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, he is who, he's God. And he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Everything about Jesus, this is what I I love about Jesus, everything about Jesus was breaking limits, breaking limits. Every time a limit would be in front of Jesus, he would break it. Every time a, a, a natural limit would be in front of him. His disciples were with him one day. He's preaching, he's interacting with the crowd. They get a little bored with Jesus. They probably had their iPhone. They were looking for something else to do. And they get on the boat and they take off. They leave Jesus on the shore. Where's the disciples? Oh, they're out there. They're, they're heading over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus, what does he do? He defies limits. He walks on water. He just starts walking. Now that doesn't, tell me, scientists, how does that make any sense? How does it make any sense for a man to walk on water? You can't walk on water, but Jesus walked on water. How many of you believe that Jesus walked on water? How many of you believe that? Some of you, look, some of you that didn't raise your hand, it's because you're living with this lid on top of you. You're living with a religious lid that has to make sense to you to believe God. And as long as you live there, you'll always live inside the jar. You've got to at some point believe that God is greater than your mind greater than your thinking, greater than your, what you think is right and wrong. God is greater than that. And when you believe, there's something about it that pleases God. He'll jump over a thousand people in doubt to get to one person in faith. He's looking for people that will believe him that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Jesus is walking on water, he gets to the boat. They see him. They're scared. They don't know what's going on. Jesus comes up. They see this man walking on water. they have never seen that before. Peter looks at him, the, 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 would eventually become the chief apostle. He says, if that's really you, bid me to come. And Jesus says, one word, just one word. Everybody say one word. And he says, come. Come. How many of you know Jesus is saying come to you many times? But it requires you to step out of the boat and walk on water, so so Peter steps out of the boat and he starts walking, and you know what? It says for a moment there, he's walking on water. But what's really supporting him is not the water, what's really supporting him is the Word of God. It's the Word of God that's making him stay afloat. It's the Word of God that keeps you afloat when everything's trying to sink you, trying to push you down, trying to create circumstances in your life so that you no longer keep walking on water. He's walking on the water, and all of a sudden, the storms arise, and the devil always throws storms when you start stepping out in faith. He'll always throw storms at you. Don't think this fiery trial is some strange thing that tries to, comes to try you. He says, when you step out in faith, the devil's not gonna just sit back and watch you walk on water. He's gonna throw a storm at you, and Peter starts looking at the storm instead of at Jesus, and as soon as he looks at the storm, he starts to sink. When you get your eyes off the word and and who Jesus says you are, you will start to sink. But thank God he'll never leave you. He will never forsake you. Even when you start to sink, he'll reach down and put his hand with your hand and pull you up into the boat. He is there to watch over you, even when you fail. But I think he liked it. I think he liked the fact that Peter stepped out of that boat. I think he liked it, and I wonder what Peter was going through Peter's mind when he got back in that boat. I walked on water. (laughs) Maybe not a long time, but I was there. I was walking, and this was no magical trick. This was real. He feeds the thousands with a few loaves and fishes. That's supernatural. He heals leprosy. He heals incurable diseases that people could have gone to doctors and spent all the money they could, and he heals them instantaneously. When dead people die, he raises them from the dead. He does supernatural things. Why? By faith. And God's called his people to live by faith. What you're sitting in right now is a byproduct of faith. It's not just some building. It's not just some church that's just got here by nowhere. Some of you have come into this church recently. You have no idea how this thing evolved. You don't know how God took six people and turned it into thousands of people from all over the world. You don't know how that happened. Let me tell you how it happened. Faith! Seeing things that were unseen, believing things that were unbelievable, going forward when everything says you cannot do this. Trusting God by faith. And then finally, the last thing, and I'll close it with this. If you're going to operate in faith, you're going to have to let go of the pull of the world. This world has a pull on us. The best way I can illustrate this is a story that I remember hearing years ago about an experiment they did with monkeys. They put these monkeys in a cage, and in this cage, they put a pole in the center of the cage with a banana at the top of the pole. And they... Watch to see what these monkeys would do. And of course, once the monkeys described this, they finally figured out there was a banana up there, they started climbing the pole. Well, as soon as they would climb the pole, they would take these heavy uh, hoses and hose these monkeys and knock them off the pole. And this would occur over and over again, and the monkeys would keep trying for a little while, but after they get knocked off the pole long enough, they stop trying. But every once in a while, a monkey, a, 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 a you know, Rogue monkey would decide I'm going to try it one more time, and they'd start to climb up there. And as soon as they started to climb up, an interesting thing happened within the dynamics of the monkeys. The ones that had been uh, shot off with this water decided we're we're not going to we don't want any more water squirted on us. So they grabbed the monkey that was climbing the pole and pulled him down. And not only pulled him down, but beat the monkey out of him. (laughs) This is a true experiment. And so eventually, all these monkeys stopped trying to climb the pole. Well, then they took a monkey that had not been in there and had not been trained by the water, put him in there, and took one of the monkeys out that had been trained, put a new monkey in. Well, the new monkey, I'm sure he was thinking initially, like, what's wrong with these monkeys? Do they not see the banana up there? Okay, well, I'm going to start climbing. And so they start to climb up to get the bananas, and they start squirting the monkeys, and the monkeys at the bottom of the thing, and the monkeys see him climb, and they get squirted. They reach, reach up and grab the monkey and pull him down and beat the monkey out of him. And this goes on a few times until finally this monkey is trained to no longer try to climb the pole. And over a period in succession of replacing the monkeys, eventually they replaced all the monkeys with new monkeys. And they did this over and over again, this whole process over and over again, until there was now a whole cage full of monkeys with a banana at the top of the pole but nobody would climb to get it, and they didn't know why. Can I just tell you something? When you start to go after God, listen to me. When you start to follow God, there is no shortage of monkeys in your life that will try to pull you down. No shortage! And sometimes those monkeys are in your family. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Sometimes they're your coworkers. Sometimes they're your dear friends. Sometimes they're people. You got the mother who's been through a a traumatic divorce who now has a daughter who's about to get married and she says, now you know, honey, you can't trust any men. I don't know if I trust this guy because I I know how men treat you. I don't think you should marry this person. And she doesn't get married because her monkey mother pulled her down. You got some guy trying to start a business, but he's got a friend that started a business that failed and ended up in bankruptcy. Oh, this climate's not good. This economy, this is probably not the right time. Let me reach up and pull you back down to reality. There is no shortage of monkeys in the world that are trying to pull people down. Every day, Every day, there's people trying to pull you down. So Jesus, when he's on the scene, he makes this statement. And he goes right to the heart of the matter. He goes right to the very heart of the matter. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 14, in verse 25. Now, great multitudes went with him, and he said, turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, He cannot be my disciple. Now, what is he saying? He's not saying hate in the sense that we think of hate. He's saying that anybody chooses their family to listen to their family over me cannot be my disciple. If you're gonna let your family keep you from following Christ, you can't be my disciple. I don't care if you're married to this person. I don't care if you have parents that are this way. If you're gonna let your family define what you're going to do in this life, you cannot be my disciple. And he says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come, up, come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he says this in Mark chapter 4, verse 19. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and people become unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100 so I'm, I'm reading this one day, and I said to, I don't know about you, but I'm reading this, and I'm like, all right, I have a choice. I can listen to my family, or I can fall prey to the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other things, I can fall prey to all those things, or I can follow you, Jesus, no matter what it costs, no matter who I lose in my relationships, I'm following you. I'm not putting my family above you, I'm not putting my circumstances above you, I'm not putting my money, my achievements above you, Whatever you tell me to do, I'm yours. I'm, I'm, I'm taking up my cross and following you. And I have a choice now of how I want to bear fruit. Do I want to bear 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold? Now which one do you choose? Which one, which one do you choose? Let me ask you. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Well, I don't want to be too aggressive. I'll take 30. That's not who I am. I don't know if that's who you are, but that's not. I, I don't want to be and, I, and there's nothing wrong with it, but I just don't want to be a 30-fold Christian. And I don't want to be a 60-fold. I want to be the best. Do you want to be the best? I want to be hundredfold. A hundredfold means that you're living your life in such a way that it's magnified a hundred times in, in, in what it influences in the Earth, literally influences in the Earth. And then he goes on and he says this: <clears throat> "I love this promise. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. Everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or wife, or children, or lands. In other words, when he says left them, it means he's put God above those things. For my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. I said, Lord, I want the hundredfold. How do I do that? How do I magnify it? He says, when you follow me, No matter what the cost, and you let go of the pull of this world, I put my hand on you, my anointed hand that breaks the bondages of this world, the controlling things of this world, and breaks the limits off of your life to the point where when you finally go through your life, when it's over, you have magnified yourself a hundred times in the earth of what you normally would have done, a normal person would have done. You have a hundredfold. It's not a give a dollar, get a hundred dollars. That's some TV preacher trying to rook you out of money. It's a hundredfold return in your life. Amen. Amen. And he saying he doesn't say give money to get it. He says leave certain things. What? The pull of this world. All right, so where's the pull of this world holding you back? What's limiting what God can do in your life? And the Lord said to me, what would it look like Oh, what would it look like if the whole church was operating with a hundredfold? Well, You can't believe that. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. I believe it's possible. I don't believe it's probable, but I believe it's possible. I believe all things are possible. And I believe, in, I'm, here's what I was, I'm believing for you to live a hundredfold life. I really am, I'm believing for it. But in order for you to do it, You're going to have to change your identity. You're going to have to start walking by faith. You're going to have to let go of the pull of this world. And when you do that, God will put his hand on you, and you will wake up one day. Listen to me. You'll wake up one day like I'm waking up every day right now looking at the results of what it means to live for Jesus. That's for you. That's not for just one person. That's for you, the church, and that's what Paul was praying, what the whole church could realize, who they are, what they can do, the power that's available to them, what they could do in this earth. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to take a moment, a Selah moment. I want you to pause. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to think about this. I want you to think about what God is saying. What is God saying to you where you've limited God? God. Where you've let the circumstances or people or education or your achievements limit to what God can do in your life. And if you're here this morning and you say, I I have not been living to the fullness of my potential. Let me just tell you something. You will never get there without the very most important step of your life. The first step. And the first step is admitting you need God in your life. You need a relationship with God. And the only way to have a relationship with God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why He sent His Son. He sent His Son to demonstrate to us what a life without limits looks like. And then He went and died on a cross so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. But you can never fully embrace what God's called for your life until you surrender your life, until you die to yourself, until you admit, I need a Savior. I need forgiveness of my sins. I need a life that starts over with God. You can't ever get there until you fully surrender to Jesus. So if you're here this morning or you're watching us online and you say, that's me, I've, I need to do that. I need to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I want to live this life that you're talking about and I know I can't get there without God. If that's you, all across this building with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you. I wanna pray for you this morning, but I want you to just simply do this one thing, lift your hand, just lift it up high, all across this building, just lift it up high, lift it up high, lift it up high so I can see it, so I can see it, don't be half-hearted, lift it all the way, all right. You can put your hands down. I'd say there's a good 100, 150 people that lifted their hands. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. You ready for this? I'm not gonna let you buy that easy today. Here's what I believe about salvation. Salvation starts with this place of brokenness where you admit need, where I need Jesus, I need God. I I can't do this without God. But then it takes a step of faith to say, I don't care, listen to me carefully, what people think about me. I'm not gonna let people dictate my salvation. I don't care what people think about me. I'm gonna follow you, Jesus, no matter what people think, even if it's somebody that's close to me, next to me, sitting next to me. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus said, if you'll confess me before others, I'll confess you before the Father. But if you deny me before others, I have no choice but to deny you before the Father. So there comes a place where something breaks on us, where we we make a public profession of our faith, where we state publicly, I am coming to Jesus. I'm letting go of who I used to be. I know I need Jesus as my Savior. I need forgiveness of sins. And today, I'm ready to let go of my past and embrace this new life with Christ. There's something about doing that publicly. So if you raised your hand and you really met business with God and you're not just, you know, doing the religious thing and you're really serious about God right where you're sitting and you're ready to say, I don't care what people think about me, I don't care what the person next to me thinks about me, I don't care what the public thinks about me, I am ready to proclaim that Jesus, I'm coming to you today. Right now, right here, if that's you, I want you to stand to your feet. Just stand all over the building, just stand. Just stand and say, that's me, I'm coming to Jesus. I'm surrendering my life to Christ. I'm giving my heart to Jesus. There's no embarrassment. This is one of the greatest, this is the greatest thing a human being ever does in their life is when they give their life to Jesus. There is nothing greater than that. There's nothing you'll ever do past this that's greater than what you're doing right now at this moment. This is the greatest moment of your life. Once you decide to follow Jesus, your life will never be the same again. Now, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer and I want you to lift your hands to the Lord all across this building, we're gonna pray this together. Let's say it together, Jesus, right now, I repent of my sins and God I ask you to forgive me cleanse me from all of my past and give me a new future I believe that you Jesus Christ are the Son of God who died for my sins and rose from the dead and today I surrender myself my body my soul and my spirit into your hands to be with you forever. Jesus Christ, you are now the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen.